time. Uh, one of my favorite Twitter accounts is called uh, Ladies and Gentlemen, The Weekend. It's simply this. Uh, it's Daniel Craig who plays James Bond. So he gets out, and it's every week, it's one post on this, on this Twitter account. And it's Daniel Craig getting up, and it's him on SNL introducing this artist called The Weeknd. So every Friday, it's guaranteed that this account will just have Daniel Craig in a little gift saying, ladies and gentlemen, The Weeknd. And it's a collective Twitter, like, exhale, like, oh, it's finally The Weeknd. It's the end of the week. We can now relax and re be refreshed. And it's interesting, if you ever think about it, why we actually have not the band or the artists of the weekend, but we actually have weekends themselves. Like, why do we have two days off a week? Now, I'm not going to go into the history of that. It go goes back to the Industrial Revolution and Henry Ford and all that fun. But what you do on the weekend, what you do, not just what you do during the week, but I'm going to focus on what you do on the weekend, has a way of kind of helping you understand and other people understand who you are and what you like to do. So for instance, I, I, how many people are snowboarders? Okay, we have, we have some like hands raised, right? So if you, you don't just go and snowboard on Saturday, right? It kind of becomes a little bit of an identity for you. Like I'm a, I'm a golfer. Like, we have this saying called weekend warriors. I have friends that go out and they're like three rounds on Saturday and Sunday combined. And it becomes a little bit of their self-understanding of who they are. What they do on the weekend helps them understand themselves, but it also helps others understand what type of community they are a part of. Where you spend Saturdays, where you spend Sundays, says something about you, but also it says to the world, this is what you are like and this is what you like to do and in some ways, who you are. Now this dates back, not just uh, since the Industrial Revolution, but this dates back in many ways all the way to the Jewish people. For the Jewish people, the Sabbath was part of their identity. This was given to them by God as a way for them to be different from the community of people around them. They weren't snowboarders because they snowboarded on Saturday. They weren't golfers. They were Jewish. They, were, they Sabbathed. They rested. It made them different than those around them. And it's on this day that we find Jesus breaking all their rules and giving us a picture of his identity and of his empowerment in life. So we're, we've been in this series called Reframing Jesus. We're looking at um, the book of John and looking at how we can get a new understanding of the person and work of Jesus. And now we're entering into this new por portion of the book. From chapters 5 to about 10, Jesus is now entering into these really significant festivals. He's entering into these really key parts of the Jewish life, and he's reframing them and in radical ways for them to understand that, hey, you've been doing it this way, but let me show you that all along it's been about me. So we're looking at Sabbath, the Passover, 
the uh, Feast of Tabernacles, and actually we will also focus on Hanukkah because Jesus himself celebrated Hanukkah. So in chapter 5, we see him going to this unknown feast that we'll just call the Feast of Sabbath. And there's a bunch of things that take place in this. He walks to Jerusalem, and he goes and he sees, uh, verse 3, a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed. And I want to put a bug in your ear that we're not going to answer yet. Why did he choose this man? There's a multitude of them. They're all over the place. They're all looking for this healing. There's this superstitious way of um, life that they thought if somebody picked them up as the waves were um, like wavering, if you will, somebody put them in the pool that they would be healed. There's multitude of them, the passage says, but there's one person that Jesus addresses. How did he know which one to do that to? And so here he is. He's addressing them. They're lying there. And he asks this question in verse 6. Do you want to be healed? There's this weightiness to that question. That is, in many ways, is Jesus' invitation for his whole life. Do you want to be healed? Do you want what he has to offer? The sick man goes and says, uh, he gives them an explanation. But Jesus says in verse 8, get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. And then John just chops this little bomb. Now this, was ha- this happened on the Sabbath. For the, for the Jewish people, not only was it their identity that they were um, Jewish because of their taking of the Sabbath, but it was such an important thing for them that they created a whole set of rules to make sure that they didn't break the one rule. So they had one rule, don't break the Sabbath, keep it holy. They went on and created 83 different rules to make sure they didn't break the one rule. And one of those was, hey, you're not allowed to pick something up from one domain into another domain. Okay? So you can't take something from your house somewhere else. No, that would be breaking the Sabbath. They added on to the original law so that they could protect themselves to make sure. Now, a lot of times the Jewish leaders get a bad rap. Uh, you can kind of understand them a little bit, though. They're, in some ways, their intentions are pure. In some ways, it's like, you know, I don't want to break God's rules. I don't want to break the commandments. I want to I be a good person. I want to follow the rules. I want to be known by my good works. And yet, Jesus rebukes them in many ways. They were adding to what Jesus actually said, what God actually said, rather than taking it at the very thing that they were supposed to do. So they respond, and I love their response in this. Verse 12, notice that they don't say anything about the guy being healed. Nothing. They are only concerned about, did you break the rules? They're not happy They're not saying, oh my goodness, you're actually healed. They're not noticing that this is one of the multitudes that have been sitting by this pool for years and years and years waiting for God to do something in him. And like, oh man, that's so amazing. What they're saying is, hey, you broke the rules. What's going on here? Why would you do it? Who said that you could do that? They had added to the actual scriptures about Sabbath to protect them. 
Now, it is in the midst of this that Jesus goes on to not just teach about the Sabbath. Because at the end of the day, the Sabbath is the context of this, but it's not the content of this passage. Because all of this was about Jesus' relationship with God the Father. How are they connected? The healing on the Sabbath was what the religious leaders saw. But what this pointed to, what it meant, was even more significant. What does it say in verse 18? Let me read that again. This was why Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself what? Equal with God. Equal with God. This whole passage is helping us get a bigger, more broad glimpse of what Jesus, who he is. Last week, in, with the woman uh, at the well, we revealed, he revealed to himself that he was the Messiah, that he was the one that they'd been looking for. But he ups the ante even more in this passage. He says not, not only that, he's claiming to be equal with God. And then just real quickly how this passage is laid out. Verses 19 through 29 starts to say how, God has, how Jesus is equal with God. In submission, in giving life, in raising from the dead, in having judgment, in receiving honor, having possession of life. All of these things are revealing that Jesus is equal with God. And then at the end of this chapter, there's these five witnesses as if Jesus was on trial, to point to Jesus' identity. These were things that he could point to that he could say, hey, I'm claiming to be God, and these are the five witnesses that would speak to that. I'm claiming to be equal with God the Father. These are those that could affirm that. Now, real briefly, what are those? They are his works. They are other leaders the Father himself, the scriptures, and his heritage, or Moses. These were things that pointed to that identity. Now, he doesn't need them, but for the sake of the listeners, he gives them. Now, oftentimes, these are the types of things that we use as witnesses to identify us as well. Just like on the weekends, we say, who am I? Well, it's based on what I do. These are the things that I engage in. What Jesus is saying is, hey, these are witnesses that point to his identity. And if these are things that pointed to his, how often do we do the same thing? Like John the Baptist, who witnessed to him, oftentimes we can look to other people to witness to who we are. We can look at other people and what they say to confirm what I want to be true about me. Like Jesus' miracles, we can expect our works to reveal who we are. Look at what I do. Do you want to know who I am? Well, I'll, uh, let me tell you. I do this, I do this, I do this, and I do this. It's works-based. It's works-driven. It's all about what I do, as if who I, what I do is more important than who I am. And like Moses, we can look to our heritage for who we are. 
Remember, Moses was the giver of the law. Moses was the one that was the pinnacle for, uh, for the Jewish people. This is the heritage in which Jesus is standing off of. And for us, we can do something similar. We can look to our heritage. We can look to our past. We can look to the generations before me, both positively and negatively. How do I know who I am? Well, I am the result of the brokenness of my mother and my father. So therefore, I am this. We look to our heritage to define us. And ultimately, we're looking for something to define and help us understand ourselves. Jesus' self-identification as God with these witnesses pointing to him help us think, okay, if I were to look at other people and what they say about me, how does that define me? Do I look to my works to define me? Do I look for my heritage to define me? Do I look at other people's opinions to define me? And like Jesus, ultimately it all goes back to our relationship with God the Father. It's not about our works. It's not about what other people say. It's not about where you come from or who you come from. The source of our life and our identity is not in those things. Like Jesus, it is in our relationship to God the Father. Now the source of Jesus' identity was from the Father. But this passage just doesn't just teach about that. He also received strength, guidance, and inspiration. And in this passage, again, it shows us that he was fully and utterly dependent upon God. What does it say in verse 19 again, if you could show that passage really quick? The Son of Man could do what on his own accord? Nothing. I want you to say nothing. Okay, this is the person that just claimed to be equal with God. The person who John earlier said the fullness of God's glory was revealed in him. This is the same one that just said he was the Messiah. The one who just said and is about to say, all of those witnesses are pointing to me as equal with God. Who's coming forward and to claim equality with God is worthy of death penalty immediately. We'll see that in John chapter 8. The one who is God himself, who's equal with God, is dependent on the Father for everything. He can do nothing on his own accord. What makes you and I think that we can't do that as well? What makes us think that we are able to do anything on our own? What makes us think that we have the strength, the source, the guidance, the inspiration? If he was so dependent upon the Father and the Spirit, how much more so are you and I? We often talk about spirit dependence. We, and this is the passage that we often go to as the picture of what it means to be spirit dependence. This is one of our core convictions as a church about what it means to be a disciple, is that we are spirit dependent people. And it's not just because we think it's a good idea. We think it goes back to the life of Jesus. This isn't a good idea. This is a necessary thing for us. 
And in a lot of ways, it's extremely countercultural. When we think of, for those of us that are parents, when we think about raising our children, in many ways, we're raising them to be independent, right? We want them to have the skills that they need. We want them to be able to leave our, the household with what is necessary, all the skills, all, the, all that stuff. We want them to be independent. However, in many ways, Christian maturity is not about growing independent. Christian maturity is about growing more dependent. As I grow up in Christ... I'm not learning about how I can do it on my own. A good sign of you growing up in your faith is realizing how much you can't do it on your own. How much you want to, you have the desire to, but not the ability to. You may have the, the idea of it, but you don't have the strength to do it. To mature is not to grow independence of God the Father, but it's to grow in dependence on the Father, leading us by the Spirit. And I think a lot of times when we think of spirit dependence, it's often, I think we get confused because, like, well, I received the Spirit when I was saved, right? God gave me the Spirit. I received the Spirit. I know, like, I have the Spirit, so I'm good to go. But spirit dependence is not something that's necessarily given. It's something that's grown. It's fostered. It's developed. It's matured. It's something that as we do the spiritual practices and spiritual disciplines, it's something that strengthens a muscle that allows us to tune in to what God is up to. So let me define it really quick. Spiritual dependence is abiding so closely with the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, that you can know his heart and hear his voice in every moment and in every situation. So let me, let me unpack that. What does it actually look like? How do you know if you're currently dependent upon the Spirit? One way I describe this is like a radio frequency. Anybody still have a radio in the car? Anybody actually listen to the radio anymore? Right? Okay, there's a few of us out there. So back in the day, for you young folk, there was a dial on your radio. And you would have to turn the dial, and if you were in between stations, it would be this awful noise. But once you tuned into the right dial, you were able to hear it really clearly, right? So you, and then technology advanced, and it was amazing. You didn't have to turn the dial anymore. You could just press a button. It was amazing technology. You could actually like tune in immediately by the press of a button. I believe spirit dependence is a lot like radio frequencies. As we mature, as we grow, as we put ourselves in the place where we're more regularly hearing from the spirit, where he's leading us, he's strengthening us, he's guiding us, we are able to tune into the radio frequency that God is on. We can listen in the moment. We can be empowered. We can know, okay, I can't, I just, I don't have the strength for this. And we can press the button in our hearts, in our minds, in our eyes, whatever it may be, and tune into where the Spirit is speaking, what He's saying, where He's at. And that takes practice. And this affects easily all of life. I'm going to 
use this uh, example of what I'll call two-way listening. So what does spirit dependence look like in normal life? Well, one way this looks like for us is two-way listening. So as I'm going about my normal life, if I'm in the midst of a conversation with a neighbor or a coworker, I'm, I'm with my spouse or my family, not only am I learning to be present with the person that's right in front of me, but I'm also learning to be present with the Spirit of God who's also with me. So I can be engaged, listening, talking, but then also praying and saying, God, where are you at work right now? Where, and then also asking the question, God, where can I join you right now? So something that you want to say to me to, to this person. Is there something that they need to hear? Is there, like, what do you want me to do as I'm here with this person? What do you want me to do is just sit and listen. Okay, God, help me sit. Uh, like, you could be chomping at the bit to say something. Like, oh, God, they just need to hear this. And the Spirit could say, actually, you just need to sit and listen and be present. You don't, te- don't tell me that you don't need God's power to shut your mouth sometimes. Like, no, I just, just sit, be present, listen. Sometimes it may be to speak something. But we don't get that part of it if we're not learning to be dependent upon the Spirit. God, what are you doing here? I mean, one of the things that I've started doing more regularly is prayer walks, and I'm just walking around my neighborhood, and I'm asking those two questions. God, where are you at work? And, and where can I join you? Is there a place that you are doing something that I can join you in? Because I have lots of ideas. I think it's wonderful and great. And I'm, I'm praying and fasting every week for the harvest. And I'm praying and fasting and interceding for my missional community in our church. And that God would show us what we need to do. Like That's part of what this looks like for us. But I can also say I have all these ideas. And I've also tried a lot of ideas. And they haven't been successful kind of fallen flat on their face. Well, it's because I'm working out of my own strength and my own power. I'm not dependent upon the Spirit. Jesus was absolutely needy. He could do nothing on his own accord. He who was equal with God was dependent upon God. How much more do we need to be dependent in this life on the Spirit for all of life? So I don't know what your understanding of Jesus' identity is. C.S. Lewis has this quote, um, that, and it says that the claims of Jesus leave no middle ground. C.S. Lewis says that there's three ways you can look at Jesus. He's either a liar, which means that what he's saying, his claims of equality, he knows it's not true and he's lying to you. It's either he's a lunatic, which means that he really does believe that he is God, but he's out of his mind, he's crazy, and he's not. Or, the third option, that he's actually Lord. His claim for equality with God and the truth that he is equal with God. There is no middle ground when it comes to Jesus. His claim of equality means that you don't get to just call him a good teacher. You don't get to just say, oh, that's good for you, but it's not good for me. Because this man later raises from the dead. A few, uh, last week I had a conversation with a friend of mine, um, hurt by the church, really far from God right now, talking to this other person, 
And I, this is my saying I typically go to now. I say, I believe that 2,000 years ago, a Jewish man rose from the dead. And if that's true, it changes every area of my life. Like, I don't get to say that that is not true. I can't, I have to deal with that claim. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or as C.S. Lewis said, he is actually Lord. So what is your perspective and understanding of Jesus' equality? But then also, he could do nothing on his own accord. What is your understanding of dependence? How are you dependent? How are you learning that you, like Jesus, need to be empowered, to be tuned into what he's actually speaking? That we don't have all of it figured out and that we need him to be let in charge of our life.